I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. From Monet's world-famous water lilies, to images on an ancient Greek vase showing beautiful gardens, to Frida Kahlo's appreciation of the natural world, depictions of green spaces have inspired artists since the beginning of time. But what about the other way round, when works of art are used to inspire us as gardeners? I'm thinking about painterly planting, or gardens whose colour schemes reflect a favourite artist. In today's show... We're exploring the ever-evolving relationship between art and nature and how we can all channel our inner artist. I'm Fiona Davison, Head of Libraries and Exhibitions at the RHS, and studying and sharing works of art that try to capture nature is a part of my job that I really love. We've got over 30,000 botanical artworks and it's always a pleasure to spend time with them. In the podcast today, we're going to be talking to landscape designer Sarah Price about the artists that inspire her, exploring sculpture with RHS Wisley curator Matthew Pottage, and we'll be taking a look at how swiping on Instagram has influenced plant lovers. Shock horror. But let's start today in one very famous painter's garden. A lot of us will associate British artist David Hockney with the glamorous 1960s LA lifestyle captured in his famous paintings. But recently, he's been covering a lot more of the natural world and countryside scenes. And he's got a new exhibition that's just opened at the Royal Academy in London. It's called The Arrival of Spring, Normandy 2020. And it features 116 new iPad drawings, and they capture the unfolding of spring in Hockney's garden in Normandy during the lockdown. And they're stunning. If you've not seen any of his iPad drawings before, they're not what you expect. They're incredibly colourful, but also very evocative and detailed, even though you'd associate them with kind of high technology. They capture the changing face of the countryside in spring, especially trees, the pink cherry blossoms and the fresh green growth of the tree leaves. It's really beautiful. I spoke to the curator of the exhibition, Edith Devaney, who works closely with Hockney. Hello, Edith. It's really good of you to join us and tell us all about this exciting new exhibition. For any of our listeners who haven't been keeping up with what David Hockney's been doing in terms of using new technology in his art at the moment, could you explain a little bit about what's different about this exhibition? It's an interesting gestation, the whole exhibition. In um, 2012, he did a big exhibition of Yorkshire landscapes at the Royal Academy, and I was also lucky enough to curate that exhibition with him. 
and he did this extraordinary work, which was the final work that he finished for the exhibition, and it was called The Arrival of Spring at Walgate. And he always had it in mind that he would revisit the subject of the arrival of spring. And he also had it in mind that he would go to Normandy to do it because he thought it will be different there. The plants will be different. And he got a house and set up there. And then he picked up the iPad again. So when he got to the beginning of the year of 2020, he was all set to describe spring in Normandy and the whole country went into a lockdown. He kind of humorously refers to this now as his COVID collection. You know, I've only managed to see it online, I've, the little bits I've seen. But I think the thing that struck me is someone like a lot of us who, you know, you're stuck in one place, but you're watching time move through that one place. So you're still looking at those pictures, a sense of change and sense of movement. I think for a lot of us, who've been stuck in our one space has been our gardens. We're paying so much more attention to the changes that one place can go through. And you really get the sense that that's what the exhibition is speaking about. It is. And I think that it made me look at my garden afresh. And it's also that message that he was giving about, you know, you can't cancel spring. Can I just ask, this is the horrid question to ask any curator, is there any one standout yeah. piece you'd you'd pick? Well, I mean, the ones that interest me for different reasons are there's a few night scenes where he's painted the moon at night from his bedroom window. The point he makes about the iPad is during the day, the iPad is instant because you're able to, you don't have to get your canvas out. I mean, you know, when a painter prepares to paint, it's quite a performance. You know, you're getting the easel out, you're getting the paints out, you're priming the canvas, you're getting the paints mixed, you're making sure they don't dry too quickly, you're waiting in between four bits to dry. All of that goes on. With the iPad, he can catch the atmosphere, the fleeting quality of the light just like that. He gets that down and he can do the detail later. With the moon, he was able to do that as well. But the point he makes is you couldn't do that if you were doing it on a canvas or on a sketchbook because you'd need artificial light to see what you're doing. But you've got a backlit screen and you can do it. So they're sort of extraordinary and they almost look like the works of imagination, but they're not. They're observed. Mm. I mean, lots of us have spent a lot of time looking at our gardens and maybe even been inspired to pick up a pencil or a paintbrush or even an iPad to capture it. I hesitate to ask for tips from David Hockney, but is there anything that you've picked up that he's told you think any of our listeners could take away? Well, I think that, you know, when he's looking for compositions and subject matter and, you know, there's all 116 of these are very, very different He's looking for different shapes. He's looking for those moments of very different light and effect. You know, he loves the contrast between the kind of the winter trees, those dark trees, and then when they come into full bloom, when you've got the delicacy of the flowers and then they become much more lush and then they start to soften. You know, he loves all of that. And it's taking delight in each different phase 
we tend to think, I mean, I do anyway, you know, in your garden, when, when flowers start to die, you just think, oh, that's quite sad. That's the end of it. He wouldn't think like that. He would think, well, that's another part of the cycle. And that's lovely, too. You know, the blossom all dropped on the creating this carpet on the grass. You know, that's something you can capture as well. So it's trying to find those things that you can capture, which aren't necessarily, you know, the tree at the peak of bloom. It's, you know, everything else as well is of interest. And it's really looking in detail at elements in the garden. It's a very extraordinary experience. Mm, yes. And I think it's one that will have resonance to everyone, particularly people who are engaged with the natural world. Well, thank you very much, Edith. That was fascinating. Thank you. You're welcome. That was Edith Devaney speaking about David Hockney's current exhibition at the Royal Academy. It runs until the 26th of September 2021, so if you fancy visiting, head to the Royal Academy website to book a ticket. Nature clearly ignites Hockney's imagination, but for some plant lovers, it happens the other way round. Many gardeners take their inspiration from art, whether that's sculpture, paintings or drawings. Take the 2015 Telegraph Chelsea Flower Show Garden, influenced by the modernist painter Mondrian, or a 2018 garden created by landscape designer Sarah Price, who has a passion for painting. I'll let her explain more. I designed my Chelsea 2018 garden, which was for M&G Investments, during a particularly wet and windy, rainy winter in South Wales. And I think at the time I had two young children and I was just dreaming of a getaway <laughs> to some sunny Mediterranean climate. When you're starting to design any garden, but particularly a show garden, because you usually have more of an open scope, your sources of inspiration are really wide. Well, mine are anyhow. In this case, I also went to an exhibition on Monet's incredible artwork in which I saw some very late paintings, which he did of the water lilies. Seeing these paintings really jolted me because... I mean, he must have spent hours scrambling layers of paint on top of each other. And the way he used colour, so he'd use a very tangerine orange against kind of a ready vermilion, against yellow, against all these different shades of lilac and blue and green and white. And it was so vibrant that I kind of felt like, wow, we really are quite conservative with colour. And why don't I create a garden that's similarly creates a clashing cacophony of pink poppies with orange glossium or the acid greens of euphorbia versus like the reddy hues of centranthus. Just seeing these artworks can really give you confidence just to play. I was also, and I still am, kind of quite obsessed with using structure or using ways of framing trees within a landscape or within a garden. And so that concept of framing a really beautiful mature tree, in this case it was a pomegranate, using materials that are sensitive to the environment, and in this case it was using rammed earth walling because that can be built without cement. So I started just playing on these ideas, really creating this arid, warm environment that would transport you across the rope at Chelsea. 
And I really enjoy playing with space, the architectural play, as well as playing with, well, it's all connected, light and shadow and the textures and colours of a palette of plants. My background is in fine art and this has really influenced the type of gardens that I design. I really like to be challenged. I'm quite unusual in that I've designed very large landscapes or gardens. I was one of the planting designers at the 2012 Olympic Park, but I also design very small gardens, which may be only 10 metres by 5 metres. It's very difficult to disconnect the gardening and the design and the art because I think they all revolve around looking and being sensitive to your environment and sensitive to the changes of light. The advice I'd give for listeners who want to bring artistry to any garden they look after or design is to really look at your surroundings and to go slowly and not to necessarily rip out in one go but maybe to let your garden evolve for instance i go to a lot of gardens and they have really old shrubs in them it's very tempting to just rip them out but actually when you dip underneath them and look at the structure of their branches the way a tree or a mature osmanthus is growing there's a lot of art that you can bring into pruning that tree or that shrub and really looking at how can I keep this plant? How can I maybe lift the lower branches to reveal the shape of the stems? And you can then just put a seat underneath and it becomes a really, really beautiful place to sit. I think drawing is really useful as well as taking photos because it slows you down and encourages you to really look in detail. And I also think that A lot of gardeners are artists. They have real artistry. It doesn't have to be big moves. It doesn't have to be painting your fence boundary black, though that can be great. It's more about the kind of your approach and sensitivity to the space and possibly keeping in mind that less is always more, that creating repetitions, repeating plant species, repeating textures or textural contrast, but having a kind of approaching your garden like it is a living composition is a really powerful thing to do. Great tips. Thank you, Sarah. As well as being inspired by artists, gardens can also be great settings for art. If you take Barbara Hepworth's garden at St Ives, where she sets her sculptures in the landscape of our garden, which leads me on to our very own garden in Wisley, where we're headed next. It's also become a great setting for sculpture. My name is Matthew Pottage and I'm here at RHS Garden Wisley today and we are looking at some sculpture in the garden. And interestingly, we've just recently changed the crowning glory of Battleston Hill, which is where we always have a big piece of sculpture. Regular visitors will probably be familiar with the giant's chair, which we had here by Henry Bruce for several years, which has now changed to this amazing great horse's head we're admiring today, which is called Still Water by Nick Fidian Green. It's so interesting watching visitors when there is no sculpture on the top of this hill and then when there's sculpture here again, how it draws people up the hill. I mean, what I really love about having a big piece of landscape sculpture up here is you see it from so many different parts of the garden. 
and it just attracts people because people see it, they want to know what it is, and people want to get up close. So the hill up here is always much busier when we've got a piece of sculpture here, which is always interesting for one. And with sculpture, I think it can be really difficult. First of all, there is no right or wrong in so many cases. It's very subjective. I think the things you can get right and wrong as a scale of a piece. And because this vista is massive, we've got all the mixed borders below us and the Battleston Hill Broadwalk, you know, if we don't have quite a significant piece up here, you know, we're talking meters, this thing we're standing under, if it isn't that big, it just looks wrong in the landscape. Sometimes it's hard to put your finger on something, you just think it doesn't look quite right and it needs to be large. And I think, you know, we at Wisley, we don't have loads of sculpture through the garden, but we do have a few pieces, and I think the scale is a main consideration. There's always two schools of thought. If you're placing sculpture at home, it's something that I've argued with my mother over over the years, because they have a statue in their, their garden up in Yorkshire, and I don't like to see everything from the window. She does. She thinks, well, we've bought this thing. I want to see it when I'm washing up. I don't want to see everything from the window. I want to walk around the garden and discover something. So when I've been home before, I've moved the statue, which has upset her, but I'm no longer going to do it because it will put my back out. So you can have an element of surprise. Find it when you're walking around the garden and it can be a lovely surprise thing to come across. I think if you're positioning them in a border, it is really lovely to have planting around them, among them. I mean, sculpture can feel like part of the garden. And it also depends on the materials. If it's something quite natural, if it's something wooden, for me, you know, it wants to be near trees, near shrubs, have some perennials around it. Or if it's something, you know, very, very different and a very, very bold colour or something very contemporary, maybe it's fine sitting in the middle of the lawn. And again, it really is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and position it maybe in a couple of different spaces, you know, and see what works for you at home. And even in the smallest of spaces, I think, you know, you can have something. I mean, in my tiny little back garden in London, it's mainly containers, but we do have a couple of small busts, and this sounds terribly pretentious, so I need to expand on this. And we've painted them both white, and then splash gold paint down them. So I'm not trying to do this classical, you know, I think I'm living in Rome, but I'm actually in a flat in London. You know, so they look, eccentric they don't look like we're taking it seriously but they look interesting and I think really you know putting sculpture in the garden you do it to enhance the garden to add another layer of interest to hopefully you know either complement or bounce off plants or trees and I think you know a lot of people would agree that you do it as another layer of interest people that hate sculpture in garden would say there's enough beauty in nature there's enough beauty in trees and topiary and hedges you don't need them and of course, there's no, again, there's no right or wrong. Some people have garden gnomes, some people have wishing wells with a spinny little windmill next to it. If that's what you're going for, it's fine. You know, your garden is about bringing you pleasure. So, you know, no snobbery with it, no rights and wrongs. But I do think almost any space can be enhanced and have another level of interest added to it. <laughs> Of course the magic of setting sculpture in a garden is the garden never looks the same through the year. So, you know, do think about the positioning in the summer, but maybe in the wintertime you want to move it because you lose what's around it. The perennials die down or you want to have it near a, a winter flowered shrub. So there is that excitement to be had. You can move things around, but also it is so different in a garden in midwinter to what it is in high summer. So I think it's something you can play on and something, again, 
you might not get it right first time and you might prefer it in different positions throughout the year. Matthew Pottage. Earlier in the episode, we heard all about Hockney's iPad drawings, which got me thinking about the other ways modern technology is affecting both art and gardening. Do you like to post pictures of your gardening wins on social media? Or perhaps your peonies are looking fantastic and you just couldn't resist sharing them on Instagram? Well, you wouldn't be alone. This platform is transforming the way we garden. From designers who share inspirational pictures on their profiles to passionate hobbyists wanting to spread the news about their bountiful broad beans, there's a big online community shaking up the horticultural industry. So let's meet some social media using gardeners. My name's Poppy Okocha. I am an ecological grower and I use social media to share informative, educational, inspiring content. I think social media, how has it impacted the wear garden? Well, I suppose I try really hard not to share a unrealistic image of what gardening or growing is. The whole ethos behind what I do is that everything needs to be useful in some capacity and not just growing for growing's sake. I don't think that I personally edit the way I garden particularly to meet like an audience because the whole point in what I'm sharing is utility and making sure everything is useful for us, for other creatures, for the space. It's not so much about perfection, it's just about joining in. My full name is Ashley Norcori. My Instagram handle is Allotment Cafe. I'm starting to see a move on Instagram more away from perfection and just sharing normality. I think when I first got my Instagram account, I had this misguided belief that I'd have these rainbow tomatoes and hampers full of harvest and I'd be sharing that to the whole world. But I'm a beginner gardener and I just find sharing those moments of struggle, like right now my garlic has been blighted with garlic rust. And then people chime in like, oh, I got hit by garlic rust as well. And they offer up their solutions or we collectively give up on it together and we try something else. It can feel like a lot of pressure to maintain a perfect Instagram. But the funny thing is that no one actually is interested in that. People are more interested in the real life aspects of gardening, what goes wrong. My name is Caro and I'm one half of Roco, the biophilic design studio based between London and Margate. Our clients are often investing a huge amount of money and they specifically want their most visible spaces to be photogenic. So with photo opportunities in mind, rather than spreading planting out all over a floor space, as I think we and companies used to do, we find it works better now to concentrate the elements of the design to fewer areas, but with more impact. This way we can help our clients create really focused areas of greenery that give that wow factor that I think they're looking for. People from different cultures show you what they're growing. There's loads of sweet swaps. I've given people seeds from my country, Zimbabwe. They've given me seeds from their countries. I've got Kalaloo growing on my allotment now. I've got all sorts. And it's just so lovely that we're creating this little vibrant community of just sharing a little something personal from our own journeys. That would have never happened without Instagram. And I'll be honest with you, if Instagram wasn't there, I'd be growing potatoes and broad beans and... And it's just pushed me to try things that I didn't even know about, which is quite nice. I find Instagram a really useful tool for people who maybe wouldn't necessarily have been spotlighted in the world of horticulture. So 
it kind of has opened up the playing field to people of colour, women, who maybe wouldn't normally have had an opportunity to share their knowledge or expertise, or even people who aren't necessarily at the top of their game, but know a bit and want to share. So I think it's a really brilliant space that allows for everybody to get involved, really. I do see that there are certain plants that sort of become very popular. For example, dahlias seem to be like just everyone's obsessed with them. And I think, you know, as a plant, they are very dramatic visually and they do look beautiful in a photo. So, yeah, I think that there is an element of trend. And when you see somebody growing something, you're like, oh, my God, that's beautiful. You want to try it. And then word spreads. And next thing you know, everyone's got it. I think the biggest danger with Instagram and gardens is that there's the potential for people to kind of have this idea of goal orientation in the garden. A big part of gardening is kind of stepping away from like an end goal and actually allowing the natural world to lead the process and just seeing where things go, being open to learning, understanding that things take time, trees take years to grow, seedlings germinate in their own time and I think that social media has the potential to really kind of tarnish the process of relaxing and waiting and watching and learning through time rather than expecting instant gratification. I think that yeah the beautiful sort of flower displays that we all expect to have in year one aren't necessarily realistic and it's the slow learning process with the failures that you kind of accept and take in your stride that is the really kind of powerful thing about gardening. Hi, I'm Michael Perry, also known as Mr. Plant Geek. And mm, how to describe my job title, hortpreneur? Of course, horticulture and gardening has always been such a solitary activity. And think about how Instagram and social media has really opened that up. Head gardeners, gardeners in the countryside that have lived alone for years and now able to connect with other people. My 12-year-old self, when I was that kind of nervous teenager that was keeping my horticultural passions a secret, I would have loved Instagram and social media to connect with like-minded people. So it can only be a good thing. Sculpture, gallery gardens, Hockney's celebration of spring. We've really covered a lot in today's show. I hope you're feeling inspired to get even more creative, whether in the garden or on a canvas. And as ever, if you want to learn more, just visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and join us next week at the Hampton Court Palace Flower Show. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit Cress.com.
Com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.